Let's look at it now. Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 1. It says this. It's on the screen behind me too, but I'll give you a second. Sorry, go ahead and get there if you, if you haven't already. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel, verse 4, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as, events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, verse 8, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob and heirs of the same promise. For he was looking to the city that has foundations, whose designer is built or, and builder is God. By faith, Sarah received, herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he, that is Abraham, who had received the promises, was in, in, the, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of, his son, of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he, was, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured 
as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had, been, had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, of Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured. Some refused to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so tightly, so closely rather, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Today we set out and continue a race of endurance. And Lord, let us sing now with faith as we observe these witnesses of old. Lord, let us proudly say that we can forsake the kingdom of this world because we await a greater kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, if you got your Bible this morning, go ahead and open to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, if you're not already there, you can get there. Hebrews 11. <clears throat> if you notice, you know, usually I've got a, I've got a, a slender kind of, a, it's a, it's a, goatskin black Bible. They're both ESV, this one and that one. Um, it, that one is like a, like a smooth pair of Jordans. Like it's like some nice sneakers. This is like my work boots, like steel toe, get in the mud Bible. The reason I have it is because I've got a whole bunch in this chapter that I would like to, like when I was reading it a moment ago, to inflect and make sure and be enthusiastic about because of some of the things here. So I brought my, my, my Bible to real work today, all right? So, um, and I'm so excited to open this with you guys and check it out. You know, there are many times in, in this book uh, and in this chapter, really, in chapter 11, and we, by the way, just to clearly say, we started in Hebrews 1.1 and we're in chapter 11 today because that's where we're at, right? We're not, I'm not picking that one out if you're not a, you know, a regular person here at Fellowship or you're a guest of ours. We've been walking through the whole book, and so today we're in chapter 11, and there are many, many things that we could stop and pause in this big chunk of text and comment on it. Right? I mean, so many things we could stop and say about it, but since we are tackling it all, I'm not going to focus on everything here. I'm going to focus on the high points as they support the larger argument of the chapter in its context. And by the way, you may be really familiar with this chapter. Call it the Hall of Faith or something like that. 
Um, in this chapter, perhaps you've read it many times, but I would venture to say that maybe you've never heard it preached before, like the whole book of Hebrews preached before. And because of that, I would venture to say maybe you've never seen it and read it as we did today in the context of having built on so many chapters leading up to it. So uh, what we're going to see today is what this chapter, not just picking it out and saying, let's build a doctrine of faith, but seeing why the author of Hebrews talks about it when he does, how he does, and why he does. Where does it fall in the letter? Well, it falls in a section about warnings and perseverance as the demonstration of faith. Look back real quick in chapter 10, just to set it up. Look at verses 32 through 36. I'm going to read those real quick. It says, again, just to set it up, the context. But recall, so after his warning, ending in verse 31, he says, Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, saved, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Don't miss that word, sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach, so mockery, affliction. Sometimes being partners with those so treated. You had compassion on those in prison and joyfully accepted, listen, the plundering of your property. So people were stealing from them and they joyfully accepted the fact that people were stealing from them since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Those possessions left. You have an abiding possession. Therefore, he says, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have no need, or for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Look down to verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, those are the faithless ones, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And then we get to chapter 11, verse 1, that says, now faith, speaking of faith, right, it's the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. In other words, when we use that word faith, we may hear it or maybe imply it in terms of a leap of faith. You ever, ever heard that phrase before, a leap of faith? Almost like you're, you're taking a big gamble, right? And you're going you're gonna to jump into the abyss and hopefully there's a net underneath you to catch you. Maybe starting a small business. It's a leap of faith. Dating that girl is a leap of faith, right? We'll see if it works out. And maybe that's how we think of faith, but that's not a biblical understanding of faith. It's just not. I mean, what does it say here? It says it's an assurance thing. It's not an IRA or a social security that you're hoping pans out. It's a trust fund that your father has perfectly arranged for you to receive in full at the proper time. It's not a gamble. We're talking about assurance. And in context, that must be said. He says faith is assurance. And if you're describing or defining faith this morning or writing notes, this is one that maybe you want to think about. That faith is assurance that what is hoped for will become a reality. Faith is the assurance of what is, that what is hoped for will become a reality. It is being convinced that the unseen promises of God will be fulfilled. Will be. Not a gamble. It's going to happen. That is biblical faith. It's bearing the present sufferings and difficulties because of the assurance of the future. And by the way, your translation, if you don't have the ESV Bible this morning, your translation, by the way, ESV stands for the extra saved version. I don't know if I've ever made that joke with you guys before, but I figured now was a good time. The ESV is not a perfect translation, but it does a really good job of translating this, uh, these first two verses. In chapter, one, or, sorry, chapter 11, starting in verse 1, <clears throat> it does a good job of translating this verse. I want to look at it. Faith, it says, is the assurance. Your translation may say confidence. It may say the substance. But those two words are not really quite capturing what the author is intending here. The author is intending to say faith is not just being real confident. It's not just some sort of a substance, an immaterial thing. Faith is assurance. 
And then in verse 2, again, ESV translates this really well to the true Greek. It says, For by it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. Commendation. Now, your translation may say a good report, or it may say approval. Approval and commendation are good ones to read together. These really capture well what the author is intending here, is that faith has a yield of being approved by God at the end of all things, of being commended. You're, you're in right standing. That's the result of faith. Which, listen, we are big on the word saved. When we talk about Christianity and being a Christian, we talk about the word saved, right? I'm, I'm saved. I'm a saved person. When were you saved? We, we talk about that a lot, right? And that's a good word because the Bible uses that word. But we should also see the value of the word commended or approved. Because salvation is simply a means to a greater end. Salvation is not the end. Salvation is the means, but the end is that one day we will stand before a holy God as unholy people, and yet God looks on us and says, approved. Approved. How? Salvation. But the key is that we are approved because of that salvation. Here's the big thing. That you and I will either be commended before God one day, or we will be condemned before God. Two options. We will either be commended, approved before God, or we will be condemned and judged before God. And what is our faith? Our faith is that Jesus won our commendation for us. He won our approval. Because we cannot be approved before God based on our own merit. Jesus went for us as our substitutionary sacrifice, went in our place and bore the wrath reserved for us so that we may be recipients of God's grace, favor, approval, commendation. That's what we say in Christ alone. And by the way, the author of Hebrews has repeatedly said it's done in Christ alone, in Christ alone, in Christ alone. And remember who he's writing to. He's writing to a Hebrew audience, which are just Jewish Christians. They have a long tradition of Judaism, and now he's saying the game has changed. There's something greater that's come, which is what we've titled this whole walk through the book of Hebrews. He's shifting these Jewish Christians to see that there is no lasting hope in the old way. It's only in Jesus. And so here's the thing. It would then be natural, and this is really fascinating, it would then be natural for a Jewish audience, after the author has said all these times, it's got to be in Jesus, it's got to be in Jesus, it's got to be in Jesus, that it would be natural for these Jewish Christians to then be thinking, so what about all those guys before him? What about Abraham? What about Noah? What about Moses? What about all these forefathers? You're telling me that they didn't have the way, and so what, what about them? It's a natural progression. How are they included in the story of God's grace in Christ? Hebrews 11 is the answer. It's the answer to that question. Those people weren't perfect. Every one of these people that we're about to read about sinned just like we do, but they received their commendation, approval, not condemnation because of their faith, just like we do. I'll put it this way. If life is an endurance race, which is what I've titled this, part two of that endurance race. If life is an endurance race, then faith is being certain that eventually there is a finish line and a prize. I mean, do you ever run a race without the certainty that you're going to cross the finish line? That would be all kinds of stupid. You know what I mean? That'd be like glutton for punishment kind of stuff. No, when you, you ever done a 5K? Anybody ever done a 5K? Don't raise your hand, but you just raised your hand. So you just, a joke's on you, right? You just wanted to brag. That's what it was. You wanted to brag that you're a runner. No, I'm kidding. Okay, so a 5K, maybe a half marathon or a marathon or a 10K or something. They have this thing set up out there. It's this usually an inflatable thing, right? What is it? 
It's a finish line. Show that image real quick if you got it. It's something like this, right? And this is kind of a, a nicer one, but even the Alley Cat Festival that was here just a few weeks ago had one of these. It's an inflatable finish line, and they usually start there, and they finish there. It kind of goes in a big circle, and they come back to finish right there. And when, by the way, when you sign up for one of these things, 5K, marathon, you're thinking, uh, you need to back off that word marathon because no, never, not going to happen, right? But maybe you do something similar to it. When you sign up, what happens at the end isn't even in question. Like you don't even think, is there going to be a finish line? Because you're assured, you know that eventually you're going to cross the finish line. And the race organizer set the course up to finish where it began. So that you know that your car is not going to be far. You know that you're assured that you're going to get a medal. You're assured that you're going to get water at the end. You're assured that there's going to be a little clock, which you see on the right over there, a little clock that shows you exactly what your time is. You have assurance of those things. You don't even think about it. You guys ever see The Office or watch The Office? There was uh, the fun run for rabies, the cure race for the cure, something like that that Michael Scott put on. You know what I'm talking about? Show the other image. In this one, they ran a race, and Kelly, who's on the right, was at the finish line. The only problem is they did a 5K, and the finish line was, well, Toby crosses the finish line, and he says, Toby wins, I win. And then he's like, where are we? And she says, I don't know, like three miles from the office? And he says, you couldn't have made it into a circle? <laughs> and it's obviously meant to say that's silly, but you would never sign up for a race like that. You know that when you sign up for a race, that the finish line is there. There is a medal. There is family, perhaps. Your car is not far away. These are assurances. You know by the very nature of running it that one day you will cross the finish line. You can take that down. So the race of the Christian life, listen, when we think about assurance, it's not so much a matter of what awaits us. That's certain. It's not a matter of what awaits us. It's whether or not we will, one, run the race well, and two, finish. It's not on whether or not the race is, is designed and set up with a finish line. We know it is. We know what awaits us. The question is, will you run it well, and will you finish the race? So if you're taking notes this morning, there's going to be four things that we're going to hit very quickly that I want you to consider as we're running the faith race. Number one, we run it with faith in fear, or faith by fear. Faith by fear. Now, when I say fear, I don't mean that in a negative sense. I mean that in a positive sense, like the fear of the Lord, fear of God, which is a, a good thing. When we hear about the word fear, it may bring bad things to our mind. We just got to talking about fear last week, uh, back in chapter 10, verse 31, that says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What does fear mean? Fear is reverence and awe. Are reverence and awe good things? Yeah, they're good things, right? Reverence and awe are good things. And so fear is reverence. It's awe inspired by an accurate view of God and an accurate view of yourself. If you have an accurate view of yourself and an accurate view of God, then you, apart from Jesus, will be absolutely terrified to stand before God. But you may be draped in the righteousness of Jesus. But we still must have a holy fear of our God. Some of you guys have a holy fear of your, your dad when you were growing up and you're like, I know that there's a belt waiting for me if I don't behave myself. That's, that's fear, and, and a healthy fear if it's in, in healthy discipline, not in abuse, but healthy discipline. And so we may consider these things when we think about fear, that fear is a healthy thing if it is faithful fear. Look at verses 3 through 7, and we're going to see some examples of this. Notice when we read this, by the way, we're going to see the words by faith a lot, and we're also going to see the word commendation or acceptable several times as well. Verse 3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. We weren't there, so by faith we believe that. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible, meaning that God didn't make it out of materials. He didn't use lumber and steel. He created it by his own word. Verse 4, 
By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended, approved as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks, meaning that his message still speaks to us. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found. Meaning God took him to heaven just like he did with Elijah because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. He was a faithful man for 300 years, by the way. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning Events yet unseen, here's the faith, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Commendation. The fear of judgment, the commendation of faithfulness. The emphasis is is that God looked on those guys, not with judgment, but with favor. And favor is the opposite of judgment. Favor is the opposite of God's wrath. He looked at them with favor. Why? Why? Not because of their effort. Not because of their effort, but because of their faith, which motivated their effort. Abel made a sacrifice. You know why you make a sacrifice? Because you're you're thinking, either I'm going to die or something else is going to die in my place. Why would Abel do that unless he had a healthy fear of the consequences of his sin? Faith through, by fear. Enoch's life was a life of obedience unto God. And the fact that he even chose to obey God was indicative that he believed, had faith, that there was a God who was worth honoring with his life, or else there would be consequences. A fearful life, obedient life, motivated by his fear and faith. Even though he had never seen rain, Noah feared the warning, the judgment of God, and received favor in place of judgment. In verse 6, it even says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. You cannot draw near without faith. Commendation and approval is necessary in order to draw near. And we know that it would come through Jesus A verse that we looked at just a couple of weeks ago in chapter 10, verse 22. I don't know if it's going to be on the screen, but look back at chapter 10, verse 22. Talk about drawing near and about faith. It says, let us draw near, how? With a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What's the emphasis there? That we can draw near because of the assurance of faith, because by faith we are made clean before a holy God. I'll just summarize it by saying this. Without faith, it is impossible to be commended. Without faith, it is impossible for you to stand before a holy God and be approved by him instead of condemned. Not because of the size of the faith, but because of the reliability of the object of that faith. Not because of how faithful, well, you have, man, that person has so much faith. How, long, how much faith does it take? A mustard seed is what Jesus said. It's not a matter of the size of the faith in the person. It's a matter of the object of the faith that we are placing it in. Faith is only as good as the object that it's resting in, in other words. Uh, This week I installed a microwave with the help of uh, my trusty sidekick, Sam Riley, down there. And um, ours went out, and so it was one of those above the range, above the stovetop. You know know what I'm talking about? Microwave is above the... Anyway, um, so I had to get a new one and take the old one out. I've never even, I just assumed that you bought the house, like, and it was just like the whole piece came, and they just put the wall in, and they just had a microwave in it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but I'd never even thought that I would have to do that ever, you know, because you're like, it's a microwave. It'll be reliable. No. So anyway, it died. And so I, I purchased a new one, and I was like, Sam, I need your help. Like, you used to do construction and stuff. I need you to come and, and, 
and be my Aaron and lift my arms, you know. So, so we did, and, and he was like, don't pay anybody to do that, man. We can do it, and I'm like, I don't know, man. I think that uh, I'd rather not mess up and let somebody else do it, but anyway, we did it together. When we were installing that microwave, it was heavy, like real heavy, and we put, well, there was already a bracket on there, so you just take the microwave, the old one off, and there's a bracket that's already there, and I'm just thinking, we're putting a lot of faith in that bracket, man. Like, we're putting a lot of faith in that bracket. It wouldn't matter how well we hung it on the bracket <laughs> if the bracket was weak, right? I'm not, the, the ending of this story isn't that I had to buy a new stove, okay? It doesn't break. We got it on there, and it stayed on there, at least for now, for about 48 hours. We'll see if it lasts. My point is, when I was looking at that bracket, it didn't matter how well we hung it on there. It didn't matter if it was perfectly placed and perfectly on the hooks. If the bracket is not reliable, it does not matter how good of a job we did of hanging it, right? It don't matter. We could have hung it perfectly, but if the weight is not, if it's too much for that bracket, it's going to collapse, it's going to break, and it's going to fall. Guys, it doesn't matter what your faith is worth if Jesus is not reliable. It doesn't matter what your faith is worth if the gospel of Christ Jesus is not a firm and steady anchor. You can believe heartily that you're a good person. You can have faith in your conduct. It doesn't make that faith reliable. Only the object can. Our object is Jesus who made us clean. And in this race of endurance, that reality must be the breath in your lungs. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus, his righteousness. You see, fear doesn't mean that we are scared of God. It means that we have a reverent understanding of where we would be and who we would be without him. But he is good, and he commends us by his grace. Faith by fear. The second thing is faith in uncertainty. Faith in uncertainty. And we're going to see some situations now that are very uncertain for some guys, um, Abraham mainly. <clears throat> very uncertain circumstances. You'll notice a pattern with these figures that we're about to read about. They really wagered it all on God doing what God said that he would do. Against all odds. I mean, really, you're going to see the odds. They're very uncertain odds, humanly speaking. But these guys wagered it all. Abraham and Sarah, they wagered it all on God simply being faithful. Look at verses 8 and 9. It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed, when? When he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. So he left home and went out somewhere else where God said, there's going to be something there for you. And he went out not knowing where he was going. That's not a good strategy. By faith... He went to live in the land of promise, there's the key, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. What this means is there was no Zillow in uh, Canaan, there was no Realtor.com in Canaan. He couldn't get online and look at Google Maps and say, let me see where I'm going here. He left because God said go. And he traveled a long, long way to get there. 1,500 plus miles, by the way. That's based on if he's traveling in a, a, a directly straight line from Ur to Canaan. For, it's going around. But if his travels were a straight line, it's at least 1,500 miles traveling without a car. It's a long way, man. He went a long way, he and his family. And wasn't his family, not just his family. They brought their herds, their livestock, their servants, all of their possessions. And can I just say, it was all kinds of faith because they didn't, you know, Abraham wasn't riding, you know, with his concealed carry license. He just walked and went and rode and trusted that God was going to take care of them. It, marauders, outlaws, anybody could have been there. Armies could have seen what this guy had and said, 1,500 miles worth, you're mine. And Abraham said, we're going to go, and we're going to trust that God is faithful. And he didn't sleep in a tent with a deadbolt. 
He slept in a tent in the middle of nowhere and trusted that God would be faithful. That's what it says in verse 10. Why did he do it? For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, not a tent, but has a foundation, whose designer and builder is God. When it says he's looking forward to a heavenly place, whose designer and builder is God, he's not talking about Canaan. He's saying that Abraham had his eyes on heaven. Abraham didn't just go because he believed God would deliver, even though he did believe that. He went because he knew that at the very worst, his home was his future dwelling place with God so long as he was faithful. God had also promised a super old dude and his barren wife, Sarah, multitudes of offspring that would be a blessing to the world. And verses 11 and 12 are just kind of wild, man. It says, by faith, Sarah, that's Abraham's wife who was barren, herself received power to conceive from God even when she was past the age. That's an understatement. Past the age is a massive understatement. We're not talking about she's like 45. She is way older than that. And she's way past the age, it says. Since she considered him. Why? How did this happen? Why did she have faith? Because she considered God faithful, the one who had promised, therefore from one man, that's Abraham, and him as good as dead. How about that? By the way, in Hebrews, it's very rare that all the translators agree on anything. Every one of them says that right there. That's, it almost sounds like it was written by somebody, some comedian in the 21st century. That guy was as good as dead. But they all, I mean, we're talking about King James 1611 says that. As good as dead. And Abraham, man, don't you love that he loves that verse? Oh, goodness, what a mean thing to say. Him as good as dead. From that guy were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Why does that matter? What is more uncertain than the promise of multitudes to a barren woman and a man as good as dead? Why did they have faith? Because they knew who had made the promise. They weren't putting faith in their bodies. They were putting faith in the God who had made that promise. The object, 13 through 16, these all died in faith. Not having received the things promised. They didn't get to take hold of these realities, really. But having seen them and greeted them from afar. Having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. In other words, this wasn't their home. For people who speak thus, like that, all that faith stuff, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, or they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better, it's the word for greater, the thing that we've titled this walk through Hebrews, a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city, a better country, he says, a better country. 17 through 22 says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, this is a different story. This is when Abraham marched his son Isaac up to a sacrificial mountain. He was called by God to tie him to some sticks and light him on fire and cut his throat. A test. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. Listen to this, though. Of whom it was said, through Isaac shall, be, shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac, his son, invoked future blessings on Jacob, his son, and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the Exodus and the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones." Now look, we don't have time to talk about all these things. This is kind of what I was talking about. But I'm just going to hit the high point here. And that's that this family had a legacy of faith. This family had a legacy of faith. It started with Abraham. He wasn't just in despair trusting God with the sacrifice of his son. He believed that God would raise him from the dead. I mean, you may have read this story and think, man, he was really going to go through with it. 
the reason he was going to go through with it is because he did, God made a promise. It's through this kid. God's now saying to kill this kid, he's got to bring him back to life. That's amazing faith. He thought, well, he's going to have to resurrect him. That's the way that this is going to go down. And so he went forward, and he was doing it in faith, and it didn't happen. God said, stop. There's a ram. There's a substitute. Take the ram. He already made a promise of generations, and God is faithful to his promises. It's the same reason his son Isaac, grandson Jacob, great-grandson Joseph were so confident in the future blessings that they anticipated. And it's because of this. Faith looks to the future, banking on the word of God, instead of taking its cue from present circumstances. Faith looks into the future, banking on the word of God, instead of taking its cue from present circumstances. Because the reality is, we go through a lot of uncertain circumstances, and you're probably going through some right now. Really uncertain circumstances. And here's the thing, just please listen for a moment. Your circumstances want to dominate you. And Satan wants you to be dominated by your circumstances. He wants them to dominate you. He wants you to think the sky is falling over things at work, over things at home. He wants you to think, my life's over. I've got nothing left to live for. He wants you to think, I'll never recover from this. This is the end all be all. He wants you to think, I placed it all in that job, in that relationship, in those years. But don't you see that that is living for a perishing existence? This one. All of those things have in common the variables of this life. Guys, this city, and the, the thing that motivated these people, this city is temporary. These pleasures are temporary. This pain you're going through is temporary. This worry, stress, doubt, the time, the money, all of it is temporary. Well, you have faith and look beyond them. Peace, comfort, and rest walk arm in arm with faith. You want peace? You want comfort? You want rest? Those things come arm in arm with trusting that God is faithful. And trusting him. Faith looks to the future, banking on the word of God instead of taking its cue from present circumstances because things in this life, you know this, are uncertain. They're uncertain. We're running a faith race. The third thing, faith in uncertainty, but also faith through suffering. Faith through suffering. And we kind of touched on that a little bit, but we're going to see that a lot more intensive here in these next few verses. Faith through suffering. We're going to move really quickly through these verses, but these things really typify what we saw just a moment ago in verses 32 through 35 in chapter 10. Just look back and skim those really quick. Look back in your Bible at chapter 10, 32 through 35. It talks about the time that you were enlightened, you endured hard struggle, sufferings, reproach, affliction, being partners with people that were treated that way, imprisonment, plundering of your property. It talks about a better possession, abiding one, because you're losing all these things, but having perspective that through suffering, you have something greater. He says, don't throw away your confidence. You have a great reward. Endure, endure, endure. God is faithful. That's just the paraphrase of what those verses say. So in light of that, let's look at a few examples, right? Look at verse 23. 
By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. The king's edict was that every uh, male of, of uh, the people of Israel, the Hebrews, was to be slaughtered. That was Pharaoh's edict back to Exodus chapter 1. Let's, let's kill all of them to put a, a lid on this movement of this people. And so they were slaves and every baby boy that was born was to be killed. And Moses was born. And it says that Moses, when he was born, he was hidden by his parents because they saw that he was beautiful and they were not afraid of that king's edict. Now, it uses the word beautiful. That's not saying that Moses was hidden because he was a cute baby. All right. That's all that means. Like they looked at Moses and were like, man, what a Gerber baby. We got to protect this one, right? That's not what that means. Moses' beauty was indicative of his God-ordained, set-apart purpose. He was going to lead Israel out of Egypt and into the land of promise. They saw that and said, this child is different. There's something on us that says, we got to protect this one. Forget what the king says. Stick our necks out. It's dangerous. But this one's different. We have to protect this baby. They believed God had a plan for Moses and stuck their necks out in faith. 24 through 26, and says Moses himself, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Remember, because he was adopted into Pharaoh's family through that river and everything, all that good stuff. So he refused that family, though, refused riches, choosing rather, verse 25, to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach, the suffering of Christ, greater than the wealth, or of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For, why? He was looking to the reward. He chose poverty. <laughs> he chose abuse. He chose mistreatment with God's people in place of riches and pleasures and praise with Pharaoh's household. What's the principle? Being mocked with Christ is worth more than being embraced by man. Being mocked for Jesus' sake is worth more than being embraced by man or embraced by the culture, whatever it may be. 27 through 29, it just, it just continues to pile on that suffering is worth it. By faith, Moses, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, who was hunting him down, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible, God. So he's got this physical, visible king, Pharaoh, who's hunting him down, this massive army, and he thinks, the one I can't see is bigger. Wow. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Verse 29, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians who were hunting them down, when they attempted to do the same, they were drowned. Moses was able to look past the anger of the king of Egypt, following him in favor of the embrace of the king of glory awaiting him. That's faith. He had perspective. 30 and 31. By faith, the walls of Jericho, this is Joshua's narrative, fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, <clears throat> the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had, she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Don't you love that phrase, by faith, Rahab, the prostitute? What a phrase, man. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute. Wow. The weight of those words, man. That God uses this faithful woman who had a past, had a history, 32, we'll pause, we'll hold on, before we go there, just to point out, God's people accepted exhaustion, mockery, because they believed the victory of God was greater than the mockery of people. And many did great things. But we're going to see here, many did great things, but many suffered mightily. Check out the juxtaposition, 32. And what more shall I say? I don't know, you've said a lot. For time would fail me. 
to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson of Jephthah, of David, Samuel, and the prophets. So he says, basically, I could keep going. I mean, I could go on and on about all these guys who through faith conquered. Look at all these things, great things they did. These faithful dudes conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. Not so much about the ones we're going to mention in a second. Were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Wow. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Wow. What is amazing things. Wow. God did such amazing things through these people. Keep going. Some were tortured. How about that change of direction? Some were tortured for their faith, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. They were willing to suffer. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Some, go back to the top, some escaped the edge of the sword. Some were sawn in two, man. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, not in ornate jewelry and fancy clothes. They were destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. The world wasn't worthy of those people. They were too good for the world, he says. Wandering about in deserts and mountains, not in castles and kingdoms, and in dens and caves of the earth. Here's the thing. Why, why does he mention these things? Because the people reading this letter were Jewish Christians, and they were living away from Israel. Why does that matter? They weren't in their home. They weren't in their tradition, meaning they were rejected by Jews, right? These are Jewish Christians, so they rejected their tradition of the past. They were disowned, shamed. They were called blasphemers by their own families. They were rejected by the people that they were raised with, discarded. That's suffering, y'all. What about the Gentiles that surrounded them? They were rejected by them too. Their pagan neighbors that lived around them. They were mocked by them. They were plundered of their goods by them. They were scorned publicly. They were imprisoned. So why does this matter? Because the author of Hebrews is saying, you're not alone. You are not alone in your suffering. You are not alone in that the world rejects you. You're not alone in the fact that you have suffered mightily for the cause of Christ. Your heroes suffered. They were discarded by the culture before you. Let me just say this. Faith looks to the future and trusts God in suffering and distress, knowing that the reward that awaits us is greater than the persecution that right now meets us. That's faith. It's trusting that there's something greater for us that God has kept. Listen, the culture that we live in will mock you like crazy. All it takes is you standing up for Christ. It's easy to avoid the mockery of the culture. Just shut up. Just fall in line. Just swim downstream. But if you go against the stream of the culture, if you go against the grain, it's going to be painful. It's very easy to avoid the mockery of the world. It's easy. Just cave. Just be faithless. But that is a road paved with destruction. They can mock us. They can call us names. They can accuse us. They can say you're bigots. You're on the wrong side of history. They can say shame on you. They can say that your religion is archaic. It's fairy tales. Whatever. There is greater evidence of an intelligent designer. There is greater evidence of a movement of God that is irrefutably true than the faith it takes to be an atheist. And it takes great faith to say, I heard it said the, the odds are like a tornado going through a junkyard and it building a 757 jet. That's the chance of this world coming together, by chance. 
We're here because God put us here. It takes greater faith to disbelieve that than to believe that. But the world would not say that. And the mockery and the calling names and the accusations, you will be rejected by them. But you will be commended and approved by God. Which is greater? Lastly, fourth thing, and this is really the peak. And that's faith in the founder and the finisher. Faith in the founder and the finisher. Man, all these titans of the faith. We read about all these names, these titans of the faith. But we got something they didn't. This is what verses 39 and 40 say. And all these, though commended, so it says they were approved by God through their faith. They did not receive what was promised. Meaning that God was doing this big plan of salvation. They didn't get to see it. He says they didn't receive what was promised since God had provided something better. Greater is the word for us. <laughs> Do you ever feel like you're greater than Abraham, Moses, David? I sure don't. But what this says is that there is a position that is given to us that is greater than them because we are recipients that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. In other words, the thing that we have witnessed on this side of Jesus is so much greater than the things that they were anticipating in faith. It's better. That's why it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, they were commended, they were approved, but they needed to be made perfect. That's what it says. Apart from us, they should not be made perfect perfect. We must be made perfect. And we talked about this so much in the book of Hebrews. They awaited something. I want to look at one more supporting scripture and then make a couple of points about it. Romans 3, 23 through 25. Now listen, when we say that those guys, remember who we're talking about, Abraham and Moses and David and Samuel and Noah and all these amazing figures, they had to be made perfect. You know what that implies? That they weren't perfect, that they were sinners just like you and me. And you think, well, how are they saved? The answer is they were saved by Jesus. They just didn't know it yet. This is what it says in Romans 3, 23 through 25. This is so good. You know, you know the first verse, I'm sure. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Somebody say all. All have sinned. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all. And us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How many all are? whom God put forward as a propitiation, meaning the one that earns the favor of God instead of the wrath of God by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, his character, because, listen, in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. I want you to understand what that means. Forbearance means taking something and bearing something because you know something is coming later on that's going to make it all worth it. How are these Old Testament saints saved? The Old Testament faithful. They were saved because God then was passing over former sins and, and bearing them and waiting for the time that he would pour out all of the wrath that all of the sinners ever, ever, past and future, deserved. All that sin was poured out on Jesus, divinely forbearing and looking forward, us divinely looking back at what Jesus has already done. They were saved by Jesus. They just didn't know it yet. When we read about the former sins of the Old Testament saints, I mean, guys like Abraham, I don't know about you, but you say, man, I don't belong in the same conversation as those Old Testament holy people. The great witnesses, so it says, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, so great a cloud of witnesses. You want me to tell you what those witnesses did? The great, the greatness of these guys. Noah was a drunk. 
Abraham was an Egyptian-fearing coward and a liar. Sarah doubted. In fact, she laughed at God when he initially said that you were going to have a baby. Jacob was a deceiver. Israel or, 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 or Joseph was proud. Moses was angry. In fact, he was faithless at the end of the day at a time. Rahab, we already covered this. She was a prostitute. Samson was promiscuous. David, man, take your pick. He was a liar. He was a murderer. And he was an adulterer. Listen, they're a great cloud of witnesses. Greatness was not and is not determined by the greatness of their or our lives, but by our dependence and faith on the greatness of our God. Greatness was not and is not determined by the greatness of their or our lives, but by our dependence on the greatness, the faith of our, on the, the greatness of our God. That's why it says, therefore, in chapter 12, verse 1, therefore. He says, the reason the word is there is that it's an application. So because of all these things we've seen in all these people, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, look at verses 1 and 2. Let us, we've talked about that, right? We're going to see two of them. Let us, let us, let us also lay aside. Let us also, meaning us too, just like them, us too. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And number two, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter, the founder and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the application. Why, why did he go through all these Old Testament figures in chapter 11? It wasn't a history lesson. He didn't say just to remind you of all the events. Let's look at all these figures. Let's admire them. No, no, no. That's not why he did that. Why did he do it? Because these witnesses are not just onlookers. You ever read that and you think, what does a cloud of witnesses mean? Does that mean that they're like in a cloud and they're like looking at us? Do they see me when I lie to my wife? That's a bad time to have a witness. You see what I'm saying? When do these witnesses watch? That's reading this, in my opinion, the wrong way. I believe that that's a wrong reading of this. What does it mean that we have a great cloud of witnesses? Here's what I mean. These witnesses are not just onlookers. The word witness, it means a testifier. It's where we get the word martyr from. Martyr, in its original tense, doesn't mean someone that dies for their faith. It means someone that testifies and witnesses no matter what. And someone does, is martyred. They're killed for their faith because they won't stop witnessing. They won't stop testifying. So what does this mean? Witnesses, these cloud of witnesses, these onlookers, are not just onlookers. They are testifiers. Picture instead a cloud with rows of people, amazing saints of God, that are saying to us, it happened to us too. Hang in there. Endure. It's worth it. That's what a witness does. They tell you their side of the story and say, we suffered, we were sawn in two, we were in prison, we were opposed to the culture, we had a hard time, we dealt with uncertainty. It is worth it. Endure. There's coming a day when this message is going to be more and more and more and more relevant to us in this country than ever before. And if it's not extremely relevant for you right now, it is, you may just not realize it yet. It's going to be extremely relevant for your kids. And we need to witness. And I don't mean give them a gospel presentation. Or maybe so. But I mean that we need to tell them it's worth it. Hang in there. Endure. The reward is greater than the struggle. That's why he gives two applications. Or three applications, rather. They're going to be on the screen behind me. Number one is to lay aside distraction and deception. 
to lay aside distraction and deception. Lay them aside. That's what he says in verse 1. He says, lay aside, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Notice, he doesn't just talk about sin there. Not just sin. Good things, apparently. Things that are good. Things that can be really good things. You must lay them aside at a certain point. Why? Because good things can be distracting things. Weight and obstacles. It doesn't necessarily just mean sin. It means anything that keeps your eyes from the prize. Anything that keeps your eyes from striving toward the finish line. You know what we need to lay aside? Please listen. We need to lay aside illnesses that make us think that everything's over. That make us think, my life's in danger. Then what? Then life. We need to lay aside losses. Is loss sad? Man, you better believe it. But with perspective, we can have hope in loss. Lay aside that those things can pull us away from keeping the main thing the main thing. And yes, lay aside things that are are sinful. Lay aside being a, a slave to our pleasure, being a slave to entertainment. Lay aside the deception that we desperately need social media and validation. Lay aside the fact that we want to be so career-oriented that we're not Christ-oriented. Lay aside work if it means that you're a slave to it. It doesn't mean stop working. Keep perspective. Those things can be distractions from the race. It doesn't mean to be a monk, but to put it all in its proper place. You're running with a, with a backpack full of dumbbells. It's time to lay it aside. You've got things physically that are pulling you down, and mentally that are pulling you down, emotionally that are pulling you down, and that's life. But I'm telling you to keep those things in their proper perspective. Lay aside the weight. The second thing is to keep moving forward, to keep moving forward. Endurance, he talks about. Keep moving forward. The passage isn't saying for us to summon all of our energy to persevere to the end. What does it say? This list says, let us run the race of endurance that is set before us, looking to Jesus. We'll get there in just a moment. It's not saying for us to summon all of our energy, all of our courage, and persevere to the end. Endurance means trusting God until the end. Not being strong. It means to say, I'm going to trust God no matter what happens. That's endurance. Trusting that he will strengthen, that he will provide, that he will forgive that he will comfort, that he will wipe away every tear, that he will prove faithful, that he will deliver on his promises. And number three, the greatest promise of all, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. The thing is, when, not if, but when we fall, we've got to have our faith in something greater than ourselves. Got to. That's the object. It says that he's the founder and perfecter in the ESV. Perfecter means the finisher, the founder and the finisher. Founder means he's the pathfinder. You wouldn't have salvation if Jesus didn't go pay for it. You wouldn't have life if he didn't empty his own grave. He's the founder, the pathfinder. He's also the perfecter, meaning he brings us all to completion in the end, and we have faith in that. And Jesus' example is the primary thing that we see here, who for the joy that was set before him endured far more than you ever will the cross, the shame, and he's seated at the right hand of God. The certainty of future reward and joy gave Jesus the strength to suffer. My last plea to you is that that would be the case for your life. I know it's hard 
because we are so one-dimensional in our thinking that this is all there is. And we're obsessed with touch and feel. We're obsessed with feelings and what we buy. We're always setting our sights on the next thing here. Aren't we? Aren't we always setting our sights on the next thing that doesn't matter? The next vacation, the next assignment, the next calendar event. Can we lay it aside and say, at the end of the day, are these things really vital? Are they eternal? Jim Elliott, who was a Christian missionary who was martyred for his faith in Ecuador, has a quote that you've probably heard before. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What weight do you need to lay aside? Are you still moving forward? And I'll end with this, a reminder of the good news of the gospel, and that is that your perfection doesn't keep you. Jesus' perfection does. Your ability doesn't hold on. It doesn't save you. God's does. Let's pray and thank God for his faithfulness, and let us strive forward with faith.